Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Supporting Family Caregivers of Older Adults Through Times of Stress and Isolation. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on April 30th, 2020. In this podcast, we will hear from a panel discussion moderated by Carol Reagan, a Senior Advisor to Community Catalyst Center for Consumer Engagement and Health Innovation. The panelists include Kathy Kelly, the Executive Director of Family Caregiver Alliance, Dr. Aaron Emery Terbusio, an Associate Professor of Geriatric and Rehabilitation Psychology and Geriatric Medicine and Co-Director of the Center for Excellence in Aging at Rush University Medical Center, and Brian Godfrey, a Care Management Social Worker at UNC Geriatric Specialty Clinic. Now we're gonna have a brief panel discussion before we open up to Q&A with you all. And I'm excited about following up on some of the things that you all asked as registrants uh, questions when you registered. Um, so we want to tap into some of those. So first, let me ask Kathy, um, how can providers, a number of providers on the phone, you know, a lot of care managers and case managers, how can they support individuals who are new to the caregiving role? And they're taking on new responsibilities. Do you have some suggestions on that to follow up on what you've all talked about? <clears throat> yes, I, I think it's important to be able to assess, um, you know, what's really going on with families. Um, because they're new to the role, we don't really know what their uh, capabilities are at the present and what might be problematic for them um, currently and um, how they can address this in the future. There's um, a variety of different assessment tools. Uh, We referenced a number of them um, throughout this presentation um, that will get at asking the questions around direct care, the direct care situations, um, and will be able to guide the conversations that you have with families. It's always great to use a tool, whether or not you're actually filling it out or using it to guide a conversation um, it's important to to be able to ask the questions that are going to yield the um, the uh, information that you need. Um, it's particularly around um, understanding the caregiver's situation and challenges and relating it to some of the tasks that they may be taking on, especially if they're new. Um, they can be behavior or direct care tasks. There are a number of um, you know, uh, assessment measures that will ask these questions in a way that will uh, that will enable you to understand better. For example, we use um, the Terry uh, Pro- Troublesome um, Behavior uh, Checklist question because it asks the question around, um, you know, what are problematic behaviors, but more importantly, does this behavior bother you? Not every behavior that might be problematic to one is problematic to another family member, for example. Um, so it guides the conversation so you know exactly how, what kinds of resources to bring to, to the table um, for, for that individual. So it's really important to look at the direct care situation, what kinds of issues are they dealing with, will be dealing with for planning for care, taking on, particularly if they're new to the role, it's, it's particularly important to, for them to understand the relationship of, of the, uh, and communication with healthcare professionals yeah. and systems around their care. 
Yeah, uh, so yeah. there's a number of relevant resources that we've provided I think that can then can guide you in these kinds of conversations. That's really helpful, Kathy, and I think you talked about this, all of you talked about the resources, and there are so many to benefit from. And Brian, do you want to briefly add anything to that? Because you also have talked about resources and supports and and um, how you know every person is different. Do you, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, with, when it comes to resources, I think one thing to always remember, whether you're dealing with a new or an experienced caregiver, is that folks are often pretty overwhelmed as things already are, and sometimes giving them a large sheet of resources can just be too overwhelming to follow up on. So one thing you can do is actually really get to know that caregiver's position, just as Kathy was talking about. Choose a couple high-priority resources that would be really helpful for them to engage with potentially, and then provide whatever detailed information you can to help them connect. So I'm talking about not only giving a generic resource, but actually, if possible, a person's name and phone number where it feels like a, a more vetted or more personal touch. That way you're addressing a specific need in a way that feels much more helpful and personalized for the family. You know, and I would just say in general, when you're dealing with a new caregiver, remembering that they may come from a place of really loving and cherishing their new role. They may be resentful. They may be anything in between. Right, and we need right. to understand that it may take time for them to just wrap their head around this new role, let alone actually do it well. So this is all a process for all of us. That's a really helpful point. And speaking of that, sort of reads right into one of the next questions I wanted to ask you, and I'll actually direct this to to you, Erin. So what recommendations might you have for providers who support caregivers who are feeling, I mean, you talked a lot about this, but just to sort of, again, to those who are feeling isolated, um, that don't have the same supports, what what would you recommend for those caregivers? Absolutely. I, I think the first thing would be to echo what Brian and Kathy identified in terms of assessing the type of isolation a caregiver experience uh, is experiencing. Um, it may be specific to the caregiver role or it might be a broader feeling of, of isolation. And so understanding exactly what the concern is um, rather than making assumptions about it. And then so many opportunities to connect um, the, um, the uh, support uh, groups that are online. So, for example, those living in the Chicago area, Rush is offering a support group right now uh, for, for caregivers, and my guess is that there are many that are local, and you can identify uh, what opportunities there are. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as just to echo the telephone, the video platforms, right. and making referrals for telehealth. So psychotherapy can be a fantastic resource um, in this time as well. That's great. Yeah, and Kathy, just to I, mean, I hope you can add to that. I'm sure you can add to that about just other things that you might recommendations and really sort of practical tips on things that can do for people who are isolated. You want to add on to what Erin shared? Sure. Um, we we've talked a little bit um, about wellness checks, and um, I know that the this uh, where you have a national call and there's been sort of a rolling a shelter in place uh, that has gone on across the country. Not everyone um, shut down at the same time and had shelter in place orders. We had shelter in place orders at the beginning of March, basically. And what we found over time is that when we made calls it, during those first few weeks, um, everyone was just getting adjusted to their new situation. 
And um, so everything seemed to be okay. They're coping as best they can. Go back and make wellness calls now. Because as the situation elongates um, and there's still this uncertainty, there's going to be different issues that come up. So while you may have made a wellness call in the first few weeks, as, it, it, as the time elapses, you're going to find different issues come up uh, for families. So it's important to go back and refresh those wellness calls. Um, definitely, again, all of the support group information and online, um, I want uh, to emphasize this as well and to make sure that you gather these resources so you have them at hand immediately to be able to provide the families. That's really helpful, and I just reiterate this, just like the one call isn't enough, <laughs> that it's sort of a frequently checking in because things change is, is really an important point to take away. I'm sorry that there's uh, a fire truck in my background. Um, let me just one more question. If you can go to the next question. Um, this particularly, and again, I'll sort of direct this to you first, Kathy. How can supervisors, we have a number of care managers and other supervisors who help staff that they're working with at a plan or, or a, you know, a health care facility. Are, how can supervisors or managers who support caregivers during this time of stress, how can they help those staff? What can they do? Well, first we have to recognize that we're all in this together. So all of the staff, um, my staff is, social workers mm -hmm. and, and all of yours are also dealing with their own issues in their own home. And so we do have to recognize and acknowledge that in some ways we need to take our own feedback that we're feedback, our own uh, advice to families to make sure that staff are getting, you know, eating well and exercising relaxation. They're, they're planning some pleasurable events during their days. I think it's really important to have, um, more frequent maybe of less duration meetings. We started to um, do all staff meetings once a week just to check in because there was so much information to share, but also right. the, situ the situations change. They're very fluid. People need different things at different times. And to be able to bring people together and really talk about what's going on has allowed us to gather the information so we can pivot either with getting the information or the flexibility in service delivery, you know, on point so we have that constant information. But the more important thing is we wanted to bring people together, and we do this on Fridays, which is the end of the week, and people are pretty ragged because we want to know what's going on with the staff. We want to support the staff as well. And I can't emphasize this enough that we need to have some humor and some good things to share with people during this time too. We're, you know, we hear the stories, we read the newspapers as we, you know, uh, the news, which is not good. So we do need to have some lightness that's involved in these meetings as well. And to be able to bring together people more frequently around case uh, issues because when you're in an office, you can, you know, you can go over when you have a really, um, you know, troublesome call or a challenge situation, you can consult a co colleague. Um, but in this case, um, you know, that might not be as uh, uh, easy to do. So you have to plan those kinds of events to be able to bring the staff together to talk about the case uh, issues that they're facing as well. So we all need to be kind to one another, um, but we, we especially need to take care of our staff at this time too, because they're dealing 
with all of their issues at home and also shouldering the the difficult Mm -hmm. emotional issues and challenging issues that families are facing in their Mm -hmm. homes at this time. Right, and you all, in your remarks, Brian and Aaron also, you all um, acknowledged mentioned acknowledging that everyone's dealing with this situation. Sometimes just acknowledging it and leaving the space for people to have that conversation is really important. Um, So for time, I'm going to go over to a couple scenarios we talked about that might really concrete examples, like you were giving Brian and yours, to talk about how you might respond to some real situations that, that are going on now. So Let me just share one. Um, Daniela has been caring for her father, Mr. Ramirez, who's a 75-year-old who has dementia. And they're in their home with added support from Adult Day Program, which is now closed. Daniela is still employed, so she's working from home, but she now has the responsibility for daily caregiving tasks along with her paid job. How can we help Daniela and caregivers in general cope with the stress of these additional responsibilities? Are there specific recommendations in particular here for caregivers of individuals who have dementia and and maybe behavior challenges? So let me start with you, Brian. Can you um, talk about this? Um, Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that, of course, is similar to the case study that I presented, except many of you are probably wondering, but what if the person has dementia? And that's kind of what we're adding in here. So, you know, the same thing kind of uh, applies in the beginning when we're trying to have empathy for the caregiver's position, trying to understand the exact needs of this dynamic, this family situation, knowing the resources and being able to provide them in a way that's effective and targeted to the person that we're approaching, and really understanding that change and acceptance of all of this is going to take time. A lot of times it takes families a long time to sort of wrap their heads around the idea that someone has dementia to accept that as a diagnosis, and then further to understand how it's going to change how they think, how they act, and how we need to interact with this person. These are all things that are very, very difficult and may not be in line at all with how families have lived up to this point. For example, if a family is very accustomed to deferring to someone in authority, um, but this person now has a cognitive impairment, this whole family dynamic is going to need to change. And this is something that certainly won't happen quickly. So I think, obviously, we can provide what support and guidance we can. I think it's important to be able to link families with other supports that they can access, especially in times of crisis, when a new dementia behavior sets in or a new argument starts, and they get away from that, but they're just not sure what to do. So connecting with folks folks with resources like the Alzheimer's Association's 24-7 hotline, you know, whatever it might be, there's actually a lot of local groups in many places where you can actually have a consult with a, a fellow caregiver or a community leader who can provide some education and understanding. Support groups can be really helpful, you know, all sorts of things. But really understanding from the doctor what kind of impairment is taking place here and then using all your resources to figure out, okay, what do we all do now? Thank you, Brian. Really helpful. And, and Kathy, I just wanted to bring you into it briefly because I know recently you were chairing the dementia a dementia care panel um, on that. So, is there anything else you want to add about to what Brian shared about helping families with caregiving responsibilities for people with dementia? I think you know, oftentimes families um, uh, really could. Um, hear that they have permission to ask for help, particularly from other family members as well. 
but it's not, you can't just generalize the help. I think if you're able to work with the family caregiver to ask, well, what kinds of specific tasks? There's a, there, we, we fail to see the help that's around us sometimes, but they don't know exactly what it is that you need. So if you can work with, give permission to the caregiver to ask for help, and then work on specific tasks. I'd like two hours a week so I can go take a walk, or I want, you know, could you do a meal a week, or very, very specific ask. Help the others around you understand what it is that you need. Um, and people want to help, but they want to know how to help. That's really helpful. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Brian. So let me turn to another kind of situation scenario. So let's talk about Mrs. Young. So Mrs. Young is a woman who has multiple chronic conditions, and she recently had a fall. Uh, she currently lives at home and receives support from a part-time home care aide, as well as her sister, Mary. So Mary recently moved in with her sister to help care for her. And so now after the fall, she needs a new care plan to address her changing needs. So first off, let's, what would you, how would you approach developing a care plan for Mrs. Young, which also addresses her sister's needs, Mary's needs? And, and, how, and, and how would that uh, differ than sort of an in-person approach since it's now being done sort of virtually? So Erin, let me turn to you first to address that. How would you approach doing a care plan? Sure, so it seems important to identify whether uh, video or telehealth options are available. Um, there might be multiple options for physical therapy, occupational therapy, the team to be able to get involved. And so understanding what, um, what options are available is, is really important. I think one of the things that the fall highlights as well is um, the impact of trauma. And one of the things I'm seeing clinically recently is those who have a history of trauma are really getting triggered by COVID. Um, and so a new fall and the new experience of helplessness and hopelessness um, with regard to that, um, that experience may be triggering old um, elements as well. So assuring that we are not only looking at what the new needs are, but are there historical issues like trauma that may be impacting what's going on right now. So um, the case manager who's getting involved to try to set up that new plan um, might need to coordinate and organize all those services and kind of keeping an eye toward are there any historical issues, particularly trauma, that may be impacting um, what the needs are currently really helpful. And again, it goes back to really assessing what that person is asking them questions, listening. Um, thank you, Erin. Um, Brian, do you want to um, give us some additional insight from your perspective as a clinical social worker at a geriatrics clinic? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, I, I think a lot of the assessment that we would do would be very similar, whether it's done in person or over the phone, but there are unique challenges whether it's a phone or video visit that, that present when we're doing telehealth. So of course, a lot of what we'll be doing is the same. We're still being curious. We're still working to establish that rapport in a way that we're open to hearing what's going on, what their ideas are, and what they're perceiving as challenges. We're showing that we're listening, that we care. We are normalizing the experience of all the frustration and uncertainty and loss of control, and we're empathizing with that. And then when it comes to addressing the challenges of lack of in-person communication, we're also frequently using things like summary and checking our understanding. St 
stating back to the person, okay, so what I'm hearing is, and actually giving a little summary of that to make sure that you've understood and give an option for them to correct you if needed. Also, using teachback. Many of you are probably familiar with this, this idea that we ask at the end of the call, okay, so what have we talked about today? Or what did you understand about what I just said? And see what they're able to actually give back to you. That might give you a good sense of what's been understood or not understood. Great. Thank you, Brian. And now, just um, to wrap up on this scenario, because it seems really timely and important here, what are the additional considerations for virtual approaches to supporting caregivers? We talked a little bit earlier, mentioned some technology, and Kathy, you've done a lot of work on this. Could you address this issue about sort of virtual approaches to supporting caregivers? Sure. Um, I think it's important to ask you what uh, kinds of technologies they're using at home. We do this as a standard um, uh, measure uh, that we ask, you know, what's what's available to families. Um, if if in fact families are uh, not connected, and many many aren't, there are ways in which you can um, help that um, connection happen. Might be, um, you know, a little disjointed at this particular time. I I've I've done this for um, friends of mine. Um, but the, we developed two tip sheets actually uh, for this program on internet services for low-income adults um, that give you advice of where to go to uh, find those services in your community. It's it's a na it's nationalized in terms of uh, its availability and its availability may not be in all communities to be sure. But with this, you'll be able to see, you know, what is available um, in the communities if there is no connectivity, uh, no internet connectivity available uh, for for families to use. And then um, there is a question, of course, after um, looking at internet services, which can be, you know, fairly low cost, as low as ten dollars a month uh, for uh, basic internet services. But um, it comes the, the equipment issue and the training issue uh, for older adults. And uh, there's a number of different ways to approach this. Um, there's lots of different types of products out there. Um, there's uh, a number of communities that have uh, that refurbish uh, products to turn around and either uh, provide them uh, for free on loan or at low cost. Um, you can. Uh, find those kinds of options uh, in your community, and I address some ways in which to search for them in your local area. Uh, and, and training uh, is is pretty broad. I think most senior centers now offer basic Internet skills training. There are some programs that will use volunteers to go into the home, uh, maybe not at this particular moment, but, you know, in the future. I think what we're going to find as a result of COVID is, that we view um, internet uh, connectivity as a health utility because so many of these kinds of interactions within health systems can take place and are, are being more broadly accepted and there's payment sources for that. So it's important that we are able to bring people into um, using these um, services um, in their everyday life, not just during emergencies. This is so helpful, and I'm so glad you've done that tip sheet because I think, as we know, so many people, particularly as we're focusing on people who are dually eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, are low income, and having that resource for them and their family caregivers could be, you know, a game changer. 
Um, gee, thank you all so much these, uh, for these uh, important uh, discussions around the couple different scenarios we've had and your um, ongoing uh, commitment to working with family caregivers. Um, now for all of you on the phone, and there's many, many of you, let me turn it back over to Alana because then we can open it up for your questions and answers for the panelists. And Alana um, will direct questions to each of the faculty. So thank you. Alana? Thank you, Carol, and thank you so much, Erin, Brian, and Kathy, for sharing all of your valuable information so far. Uh, we now have a few minutes for questions from the audience. Thank you to everyone who's already submitted questions. Uh, if you have additional questions, please submit them using the Q&A feature on the lower left of the presentation screen. You can type your comment at the bottom and press submit to send it. We'll get started with some of the questions that we received already, so thank you, everyone, for submitting them. Uh, Let's see, we, we received a number of questions from folks who heard from and Kathy and, and all of you have mentioned uh, wellness calls for caregivers. Um, can you provide some examples of the types of questions that you might want to ask caregivers when you are reaching out? Kathy, maybe I'll start with you since you mentioned them. Okay. Um, yeah, there, there are a number of examples of wellness calls that are um, sort of floating around. These are not what I would typically say are standard kinds of measures. In other words, they're not um, – anyway, so we, we start out with just saying, how are you doing? Are, you know, are there particular issues that concern you today? Um, we also uh, ask about food security issues. Uh, whether or not they um, lack transportation to get to um, doctor visits if that's needed. Um, do they need consumable supplies? So we need to know um, things that we may not normally ask in uh, the course of our check-ins because we've referred to services or linked them to services uh, in our, in our um, you know, uh, prior conversations. But those may not be available at this point, and so we're we're getting these listings of of um, of um, uh, of needs for the family. Um, those are the three biggest ones. Besides just asking how are they doing, is everyone well in your house? Um, do you need any more information on COVID? And then food, transportation, and consumable supplies. And do you have a way to get your medications? Either um, someone can pick them up for you or you can have them delivered or mailed to you. So those are sort of the standard questions that we would ask. This is Erin. If I could just jump in really, um, I might suggest that people also ask about um, mental health um, in those checks, both for the caregiver and the care recipient, um, and whether or not you do a full PHQ-9 or GAD-7 to consider how's your mood been, how's your motivation been, um, and uh, to be able to provide referrals. Thank you, Erin. Uh, Brian, anything else you'd like to add? Oh, I'd just like to emphasize whenever you're asking about a need, our culture tends to downplay uh, asking for help. You know, we tend to ask people to be independent as a culture. So I find it's often helpful to start by normalizing the experience or the need for help and then asking for if they need assistance from there. So, for example, not just do you need food, but, you know, in times like this, a lot of people have trouble getting to the grocery store. Do you need any food? Great. So important. Thank you, Brian. 
Erin, this question, I think I'll start with you. Um, we receive questions from folks who have caregivers who may seem to be feeling stress or isolation at this time, but may not initially feel comfortable sharing their feelings. Um, any suggestions for how one might approach that type of conversation? Um, sure. So I think, you know, what, what Brian had just emphasized in terms of normalizing can go a long way. And to be able to say, you know, caregiving by itself is an incredibly stressful situation um, that most caregivers would really benefit from some professional support. Um, and now that we are in COVID, um, I would suggest that every caregiver could benefit from some professional support. So, um, you know, and, and so really normalizing that this is incredibly stressful for all of us and that there are supports available um, and just ask if they'd be interested in talking with someone about the stressors without necessarily pathologizing into depression, anxiety, or other things that people might find stigmatizing. Um, but just to say, you know, stress is really high right now across our entire world. And my goodness, you have that added layer of caregiving stress on top of all of that. Um, I would really suggest that you might talk to somebody. What do you think? Thank you, Erin. Uh, Kathy or Brian, anything you all would like to add? When it comes to mental health support, it depends on your relationship with the person, obviously. But if it's someone you have rapport with, you can sometimes self-disclose, and that can be helpful too. You know, even saying something like, I've been really worried and stressed, and, you know, I, I have no problem disclosing myself that I see a therapist, and I find it very helpful. I would recommend anybody do the same if they're feeling like they're under a lot of stress. And sometimes that has gone a long way to sort of normalize and humanize this whole experience of needing help and getting it. Thank you, Brian. Brian, I'm going to stick with you for another question. So um, whether folks' caregiving responsibilities are changing or not, there's often situations where you may share caregiving responsibilities with more than one caregiver. Um, certainly in times like these, as well as in normal times, there can be tension. Do you have any recommendations or suggestions for how to support caregivers who may be sharing responsibilities and experiencing some tension? Oh, definitely. And it's such a common issue. One of the most common things that I'll hear about from a caregiver is that other family members are not pulling their weight as much as that person would like. And so I think that it's important to remember, number one, what Aaron was talking about earlier, that the only thing we can really change is ourselves and our own behavior. We can't necessarily change someone else's uh, willingness to participate or how much they're participating. Now, that doesn't mean we can't ask. And I do think that there's very often not very good communication between family members. And this is often a very long-standing pattern that's hard to change. Sometimes it can be helpful to get folks to engage with a therapist if they're willing to, so the therapist can help them explore how to either potentially approach this person and make a request in a way that's likely to be heard, or whether it's best to just radically accept that the division of labor is unequal and we have to live with that. I think something else that's important to keep in mind is that people will contribute in different ways, but often not until they're asked directly. And anyone, for example, who's ever been grieving and someone has said, call me if you need anything, we're not likely to take them up on that because we don't want to be a burden and there's lots of complex dynamics there. But if someone just happened to bring us a meal, we're not likely to turn that down. So identifying other people and how they might contribute in a way that doesn't feel burdensome to them and then asking them specifically to do that could be helpful. We often don't want to ask. We feel like it should just be given. But in truth, we have to ask for the things we need or we just can't expect them. 
Thank you, Brian. Erin or Kathy, anything that you would like to add? I think Brian's think answer was so. fantastic. Yeah, great answer. Great. Uh, Kathy, so I know you've been working with health plans, and we have a number of folks from health plans in the audience today who are serving dually eligible members and their caregivers. Uh, what recommendations do you have for how health plans can best support caregivers at this time? Well, I think, um, you know, health plans need to, um, you know, recognize, um, you know, caregivers on a routine basis. Many, many also uh, have uh, caregiver notations uh, in their uh, case notes, uh, case files on the patient. So it's important to, um, I think, to reach out uh, on these wellness checks. It's also, I think, important to uh, tap into the community network. Um, if there's any calls that are going on, coordinating calls that are going on within the community to really understand what resources are available. Not everything is available at this time. Uh, because it's not usual time. So to really understand uh, and connect with the community, I think is really important. Um, then you're able to better respond to families and, and give them more of the on the ground, what's available, what's not available, instead of um, your, us your, your usual and customary um, referral sources that may or may not be operating uh, with business as usual. That can be particularly frustrating for families, um, but understanding what resources are available, being able to expand the resource lists um, that are provided here and elsewhere uh, to families at this time is sort of an, uh, is, would be uh, in, incredibly valuable. And if you're able to do um, these kinds of uh, check-in, particularly with um, cases that ha are, are very complex or have some sort of underlying risk factors that are involved, it might be important to check in with those uh, as well, those individuals as well. This is Erin. I, I would also love to just add to that, um, to advocate for health plans maintaining access to telehealth um, even after COVID. Uh, one of the things I hear from caregivers so often is, I can't come see you because I can't leave my loved one at home. And so having this unprecedented access to telehealth is an incredible boon for caregivers. So I would advocate that health, one of the things health plans can do um, to make a big difference is maintain that access even after COVID. And this is Brian to quickly add on as well. One thing health plans can really consider is their reimbursement rates for the different types of telehealth. Currently, many plans will reimburse a phone call at a much, much lower rate, which means a lot of providers are not interested in pursuing them. But at the same time, many patients don't have access to reliable high-speed internet that's required for a video visit. So anything we can do to help make sure folks get the care they need and it can be fairly reimbursed would be really helpful. Absolutely. Can I just add one point on the, um, from the community-based side? Um, that there's a there's an implied uh, standard of the uh, telehealth visits from a healthcare perspective because they are contracting with um, uh, platforms that are HIPAA compliant. On the community side, if you want to do these kinds of visits with sensitive information, you must make sure that the platform that you're using is HIPAA compliant. We talk about it as being all one thing, but um, having 
the experience of uh, reconfiguring our community-based organization and others throughout the state of California. You just have to be mindful that we're talking about a different level of security um, on these uh, video calls if there's sensitive information that's being shared. Great, thank you all. On, on that note, Erin, um, you mentioned, I'll start with you, you know, being able to hold these um, telehealth sessions now with caregivers, and particularly you've all mentioned, you know, that some of these may happen over the phone, and um, certainly having a phone conversation is, is quite different than an in-person or even a video conversation. Do you have any recommendations for best practices to um, maintain connection or have a good positive conversation um, over the phone? Um, it's an interesting question, and there are actually some some resources out there um, about uh, identifying um, specific ways to to do this over the phone. I think one of the things that um, that can be helpful is to say um, if it's if it's phone versus video. Video I actually find incredibly helpful because then I can not only see my patient but also see their home and um, get to know a little bit more about the context. So that can actually be sometimes even better than an in-person visit because I can get to see the home um, via telephone. Um, I think it can be helpful to sometimes say, you know, I, I can't see your face. Can you tell me what, um, a little bit more about your experience? Um, can you describe what you're seeing? Can you describe um, a little more? Um, and, um, and to be able to, to be explicit that, you know, we, when there is silence, to, silence can feel very different on a phone um, than it can in person. And so to be able to acknowledge Okay, so we were just silent here for a minute. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on? Um, and so inviting people to, to use words more than we might rely on facial expression. Um, and I'd, I'd be really curious actually about, Brian's done a fair amount more of this. I'd be curious, Brian, what you would say. Oh, goodness. I actually got distracted reading the comments. Could you fill me in on the topic? Uh, talking about uh, tips for telephone and um, how to most effectively use telephone. Oh, definitely. Thank you. I think some of our previous comments apply well to this and um, kind of like we were saying, really just double checking, understanding, making sure someone can give back. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's definitely a, a challenge when we don't have the face to face. And sometimes whether it's phone or video, we just feel like we can't get the information that we need. Sometimes following up with other people who have more of an in-person connection. Uh, to the person, whether it's a caregiver, someone else who's living with them, or a family member that just knows them really well. Tapping into that as a resource for information can be really helpful. Thank you. Great. Thank you both. I want to give some time for you all to share any final words that you'd like to leave with the audience members today. And we're wrapping up our Q&A portion of the webinar. Um, so, Kathy, I'll start with you. Anything, any other topics that we haven't been able to touch on that you'd like to share um, some insights with the audience? Um, 
I think there's one that um, I really actually meant to mention earlier before that we have um, we we also need to be uh, mindful uh, because of all of the extra stresses that we have been discussing and there might be different family configurations now living in the home and there might be more people and it just might or there may be just you know, a dyad in the home uh, providing care that we have to be mindful with all of the stresses that we're uh, discussing, that we also pay attention to the possibility um, of elder abuse and um, be mindful that we need to um, be able to probe and ask the questions that might and um, be mindful that we need to um, be able to probe and ask the questions that might get at um, the various risk factors that that might be present and to make sure that we have um, reached out to the adult protective services community to find out how they're uh, functioning um, at this time and what their staffing um, you know levels are at this time to be able to make um, adequate referrals um, if, if in fact um, the risk factors indicate that there may be some other kinds of more serious issues going on in the home, that's just one. But I also just want to leave uh, this message behind, which is that we all are learning as we're going along how to deal with this crisis, and um, we, uh, you know, have been able. I think many of us have been able to pivot really easily into. Um, alternate ways of delivering services and touching base with individuals. But we're really learning, and as this um, moves along, the needs are going to change. And so to be able to be uh, fluid and gather as much information and come back and talk about what's going on and sort of the broader scope between the individual clients and the community allows you to use that information to, to better plan or find additional resources or information that would be helpful to families or to your staff. So we're we're all um, we're all in this together. We're all learning together um, how to deal with this pandemic. And so we need to give ourselves permission not to be perfect. That we're not going to get everything right the first time. But with all of the different resources that you've been provided today and with the help of your uh, own communities, um, I think we can move forward and do, it, do um, as best of a job as we possibly can uh, with these difficult situations at this difficult time. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, Brian, I'll go to you if there's any other uh, final words you'd like to share. Yeah, thank you so much. As you know, I've been engrossed reading y'all's questions. There have been so many of them, and I feel bad we haven't able, been able to get to each individual one. I think one thing that helped me a great deal as a social worker was to remind myself that the ultimate um, onus for solving a problem never lies with us. It, it can't. It's not our problem to begin with. And we all mean well, we all want to help, and that's all very admirable. But at the same time, we need to recognize that these problems don't belong to us, and ultimately, we can't be the one to solve them. All we can do is offer thoughts and advice and resources, and I think we can do that very skillfully if we focus first on not solving problems and fixing things, but really connecting with the person, getting to understand what they perceive as their barriers, reminding them of their own strengths, 
and then helping them to creatively approach this problem, offering ideas, and ultimately letting them figure things out for themselves. Thank you, Brian. Erin, I'll leave the last word with you. Thank you. There, there are two things that come to mind. Number one is that this is a time where um, many people are being taken advantage of with scams. And so there are so many out there that people are nervous about answering the phone. They're nervous about talking to people as we're talking about doing these assessments over the phone. So would encourage people to very clearly identify yourselves, who you are, what your name is, what organization you're with, um, any information you already have about who the, who the family is so that you, they can be really clear and confident that they're talking to someone they should be talking to. And number two, that kind of builds on what Brian was just talking about, that um, we don't necessarily have to solve the problems for them if we acknowledge that uh, from a strengths perspective, that these are people who are incredibly resilient and pointing out their resilience, identifying what's worked in the past, and identifying what resources they do have. We've talked a lot today about the stresses and things that are going wrong and needs. And I think it's easy to forget that um, caregivers are also incredibly resilient and have amazing strengths. And reminding people to tap into those strengths um, at this time can also be incredibly helpful. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated and coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about the current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.